I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today with Christian Hernandez, who's the uh, founder and partner at White Star Capital. And, and Christian, we're in a very special place. I, uh, obviously, the listeners can't see it, but maybe you can describe it a little bit, because I feel like this is sort of Stanley Kubrick's vision of, of kind cool. of, a, uh, of a techno-utopia, <laughs> 1970s style. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so welcome to Second Home, which is this, uh, as you said, quite unique place in East London. Yeah. Um, it, we launched it last year, uh, last November, and it's a, it's a co-working space at the end of the day, but it's a bit more than that. It's a community it's a very kind of visible cathedral to the ecosystem that's been developed in, in East London. And it is a bit 70s looking, like literally the, the architect hand-selected all these mid-century chairs from antique markets across the world. Um, <laughs> and it's full of creative types, designers, artists, uh, entrepreneurs, and us as the resident VC. And all the walls, they're like plastic and curving. And, and, and I think you said before when you showed me around that there's even this area dedicated to just plant life. Yeah, it's a biophilia. Actually, all the offices have, have plants inside them, and there's this thesis that um, if you have plants around you, you're more productive because you're more in touch with nature. So literally, you have a gardener come into our office every day and, and, and prune the, the plants. <laughs> biophilia sounds like something you get arrested for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I suppose something that help you be more creative. Uh, but, you know, I think it's quite interesting, the, the emerging technology ecosystem uh, in London and in Europe. Uh, it feels very different to what I see in the United States. Um, this is not just aesthetic, though. The, do, do you really see some differences about the kinds of companies that are being born here in London? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's been a big debate about how X or Y or Z becomes the next Silicon Valley, which I think is a bit silly, right? It's going to be very hard to emulate the amazing history that goes back to World War II. Um, but I think each ecosystem has their own uniqueness that actually they should leverage and benefit from. I mean, London, for me, one of the biggest assets that it has is its diversity. It's a massive city with these very international backgrounds. It's a place where people go. And you even see that in, in founders of companies where you have, I don't know, um, uh, Iraqi, um, Egyptian founder of a fintech company or two uh, Estonian guys doing transfer-wise uh, or, uh, you know, um, a Swede and an Estonian launching Skype. And it's, it's just kind of natural things you accept as the vibrancy of London. Uh, but the city itself, the ecosystem has definitely changed, I would say, in the last five years. Right. Um, it has the highest percentage of GDP provided by digital uh, out of any uh, European country. So it's about 8.5% of GDP comes from the digital economy. And that's really been accelerated by a couple of things. One is the fact that you can now launch a company and take it global through platforms like iOS, Android, and Facebook. Um, two, the resurgence of... Um, existing and new venture capital firms backing them, and three, government policies like EIS, which is a uh, tax relief scheme for angel investors, hmm. um, in which if you lose all your money, you can write it off, and if you make a lot of money, you it's capital gains free. Um, uh, and also initiatives like Tech City, which the government uh, programmed to try to support and advocate the, the companies, the tech companies across, initially London, but now across the UK. Right. And, and so you, you're really focusing your, your investment uh, on, on the UK, but also Germany and... Uh... So White Star, White Star um, as a fund, was created with a couple of theses um, with, with Eric, my partner now, Eric's based in New York. So purposely, we wanted to be transatlantic right. uh, because we see not only opportunities on both sides, but also companies that start in Europe seeing New York as a, a more comfortable landing spot than perhaps going to the Valley, especially if they leave the product uh, teams back in Europe. So Spotify is a great example, started in Sweden, 
their commercial and management team is in uh, New York, but their product team is all still in Stockholm. Right. Um, so we will hunt uh, for opportunities all the way from Toronto, Montreal, New York, down to Carnegie Mellon. And then in Europe, London as the natural hub for Western Europe. You know, London, Berlin, which rightfully has the second spot as the vibrant ecosystem. Stockholm, which has an amazing track record of exits. Um, Helsinki, which has risen uh, in the last couple of years, and then Paris um, and other cities around. I mean, Spain is interesting. They had two funding rounds, a $12 million round and a 15 million euro round in the last two days. Amazing. Yeah. What, what, were the, what, were, what were these in? Uh, so one uh, was backed by um, Index, uh, and it was a 15 million euro investment into effectively a, a, an online and mobile form creation, like literally for the type of forms you fill online. Um, and then the second was a, a shipping and logistics company that was backed by Fidelity Growth. Are the nature of the exits different in Europe? Or are they equalizing now You know, with the the whole capital machine that, that exists? No, I think that's that's one of the issues. You think about the ton of tech stacks that you need to have a vibrant ecosystem. Yeah. Something that we're still missing across Europe is actually the top of it, which is the exit market, right? Yeah. Because the exit market creates liquidity for the funds, which allows them to go market themselves for to their LPs for future funds, but also creates this new category of angels and new entrepreneurs who have the at least financial ability to go take the risk again or to become active angels supporting the next generation. Because, you know, in the Valley, it's like a money machine. It's like a Hollywood production. <laughs> well, on paper, yeah. I mean, yes, obviously, employee 1,000 at Facebook did quite well. Employee 1,000 at King, I don't know if they actually had as much because even culturally, the value of options is not as high mm. because not as many success stories of people who were employee 1,000 at this company or that company who made a lot of money. So I'd argue if you're offering an employee a euro or an option, they'll take a euro today. Mm. Um, the second issue is liquidity in, in, in the public market. So where do you list? So Rocket Internet interestingly listed in Frankfurt and not in New York, but King um, went to New York because they wanted, I mean, they did a $7 billion uh, flotation. There was enough liquidity and institutional demand for them there. And then M&A is still primarily driven by, by Western acquirers, so via Apple or Facebook or Google coming in and buying companies. The most visible one in London was actually DeepMinds, this artificial intelligence bought by Google, bought by Google for four hundred million pounds. Yeah. Uh, I'd say a pretty impressive acquire. <laughs> so. But before you uh, you were doing the VC, you were actually uh, leading the international expansion of Facebook in Europe. Yep, was that quite a big? You know, I've, I've worked with a lot of U.S. companies, and uh, for them, thinking broadly is thinking, uh, you know. West Coast, East Coast. <laughs> so there's a tendency to be quite myopic, you know, even in technology companies. So was this quite a big thing for them? Yeah, so it's actually, I spent most of my career being like the, the international guy for, uh, for tech companies, uh, both large and small, from Microsoft and Google when we were starting our mobile efforts. Actually, London was the mobile hub for Google initially. Engineering and product was based here. And then, and then Facebook uh, leading our platform teams. And... Um, and I mean, obviously, a center of power is always in the valley, product and engineering. In the case of, of, of uh, Facebook, center of power is Mark Zuckerberg. Um, but the platform team, our mission was to actually go out and support companies building on top of Facebook. So using Facebook as a distribution, and in the case of games, monetization platform. Right. Um, and at that time, the team was all based in California. And to be fair, most of the companies, like Zynga, were in the neighborhood, and we're all interconnected. Uh, there were very few examples outside. Playfish was one of them, and founded in the UK. And interestingly, the Playfish co-founder actually got on a plane and moved to California to be closer to Facebook and get some attention. <laughs> so uh, Facebook decides to hire somebody. Um, I, we go through this process. I think I said no three times. Finally, they convinced me to say yes. And for me, the opportunity was this, this rise I was seeing in the ecosystem in Europe and kind of bringing to market this platform that could help accelerate it. Mm. And um, 
literally the first uh, week I got back in California, and what I call indoctrination, my first meeting was with King. Uh, at that point, was an online uh, casual games company, uh, and I was introduced by their investor by Index. Met with Ricardo. Fast forward a couple of years, King pivots quickly towards mobile and social, takes off. Candy Crush becomes this massive game. Uh, and the company becomes a cash machine. Yeah, and they they exit for seven billion. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you look at the ecosystem now, some of Facebook's biggest partners in the world are actually based in Europe. So Spotify is its biggest music partner. King and Supercell are some of its biggest gaming partners. We did an amazing partnership with the BBC for the Olympics, where the BBC actually streamed all of the Olympics concurrently onto Facebook, mm -hmm. um, and people were able to follow the, the the voices of all the athletes from all these different nations. Um, so yes, the user growth continued while we actually also used the, the growth of the platform worldwide for these companies to gain scale. Uh, I did. I was there for four and a half years. I loved it. I loved the early days of literally an office with five people in Soho, and now they have. Actually, I think they just signed this crazy lease for a. 400,000 square foot um, uh, center near Tottenham Court. You know, I often wonder because tech companies these days are putting a lot of emphasis on creating great cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, but often that's only really easy to affect at the mothership. Yep. How, how were they, when you were at Facebook, how were they able to maintain a sense of Facebook culture projecting it out to the other office sites? Yeah, actually, that was an interesting debate because that was when I was there for my first week, um, I actually asked this from one of the senior management. I said, what, what type of culture do you want me to help export? Yeah. And the answer was, whatever what culture you want. And I'm like, well, that's actually different because you're effectively asking me to be an ambassador of the culture that we have here, not only to the office, but also to the ecosystem of... of, of um, and people joining you, would they, they want to buy into whatever yeah. the Facebook brand is. I think and the way you actually did it and Google did it as well, you effectively try to send out people. So for when they open up engineering offices, they always launch out a, a, a landing party that's actually engineers from California that land here and effectively bring with them the way of working and the culture. And from there, they actually build a local team, which I think is, is, a, is an appropriate way of, of exporting it. But also like sales conferences or global conferences where you actually get everybody together. Yeah. Um, the culture that, I mean, the mantra that we had at, um, on the platform team was saying no with, with saying no at scale, right? Effectively, <laughs> how do you actually, um, actually work with all these companies on a global basis where everybody wants to have a bit of Facebook fairy dust um, and, and, and actually like give them the right level of support but knowing that you're still constrained by resources. Right. Actually, I draw a big analogy to that in my new job as a, as a VC because you're saying no, with, you have to say no with grace as well. Right. Um, but I think the culture that, that Facebook London has and the culture that Facebook New York has are all a bit different and kind of nuanced by the local teams but it's still at the same time you're still part of this this ecosystem and the culture ends up being led from the top. Larry and Sergey led it very much at Google and Mark and Cheryl led it very much at Facebook. You know, both at Google and Facebook, uh, were there processes in terms of communication protocols that, that helped sort of normalize culture? Yeah, TGIFs and, uh, and Friday sessions. I mean, the, the fact that you could live stream into Mark talking and taking any questions from around the world. Right. Um, and interestingly, when we went public because so much, so much private information was being shared, those actually got cut off on video. Uh, they actually you used to get a transcript every Monday morning and that stopped. And there was a big uproar from us internationally because that was like our connection back to the mothership or connection to Mark. And so actually they reinstated it and said, okay, we actually trust you guys enough to understand this information actually is proprietary. And by the way, you might become an insider by actually listening to these. Mm. But it was critical because literally people could ask about anything and it gave you a, a, a very kind of quick pulse of what the leadership was thinking and where the company was tacking to. How did they moderate the questions? Anybody could literally get up up to the mic and something that Google wants to be silly. like Anywhere around the world? Yeah. 
uh, the Google, like some engineer would complain there weren't enough t-shirts for the product <laughs> launch last week. And then somebody would come up and say, um, Larry, what are you doing about censorship in China? Right. Uh, and they would, and then literally be the, the founders and the management team answering these different questions. We, we talked a little bit before about DeepMind. And uh, I think AI and sort of pattern recognition, machine intelligence is going to be a fascinating area of research and investment in the next couple of years. Um, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned the company that you uh, were looking at in the U.S. That, that, that does printing of keys. Can you, can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so one, of, actually one of the specific interest areas is actually this evolution of, of data as an asset, but more importantly, how you actually bring that data to life in machine learning and deep learning. Um, and neural nets actually helping accelerate that. Mm. So we, we, we purposely like companies that are tackling a business for which AI is a differentiator, rather than just necessarily an AI bunch of PhDs that are trying to come up with a business. So one investment that we did is called Kimi. Uh, it's based in New York, and the, the idea is fairly simple. Lock, locksmith and lockout market in the U.S. is $7.5 billion. It's massive, with, you would argue, zero tech, right? When you think about a lockout, you think about some sketchy guy coming to your house and charging you a lot of money. So with Kimi, you take your phone, you take a picture of, of your key on both sides. They use a computer vision and neural nets to figure out the key type, the length, and the height, so they figure out the ridges, and they create a digital version. And then you can order a key to be mailed to you with, let's say, your, the logo of your favorite uh, team. Or if you're locked out, you can go to 100 locations across the UK, 7-Eleven, Bed Bath & Beyond, Rite Aid, and they've built these robotic kiosks that will actually literally print out your key in two minutes. Right. Um, as long as you remember to take a picture of it before you lost it. Yes. So, in fact, <laughs> it, oh, actually, you can also go to a kiosk and just insert the key and get a copy there. Or tell the kiosk to store it for you. So, effectively, it's an insurance product, right? Right. Take a picture with your phone, save it, and when something happens, Kimi is there for you to actually lock it. Um, and it's actually, I mean, the, the demand from retailers is fantastic. Um, I love the fact that they're using, literally, it's like Carnegie Mellon PhDs, former NASA scientists, building this really high-tech um, neural nets and robotics for a very old-school type of, of, uh, of business. I guess you're presumably betting there that we're not just going to all going to have digital locks in the next five years. I mean, an August lock still costs, what, 150 bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time you replace the millions of locks just in Manhattan, it's going to take a while. Right. <laughs> and by that point, I mean, 3D printing might have advanced, and you'll literally have a replicator in your house where you'll just tell it to print the key for you. <laughs> uh, what's really interesting about this case is that you've got a, a very cutting-edge technology, you know, machine, you know, computer vision, essentially, uh, which is being applied to an old problem. Uh, are there other areas that you see... AI technologies and pattern recognition technologies making a big difference? Yeah, we actually looked at a couple of interesting companies. There's one um, here in London, actually, for example, that uses uh, computer vision for uh, pipe welding. Turns out that if you don't set up the pipe welding correctly when you're underground, literally changing the pipes, um, you'll have to come back and, and redo it again, which is pretty expensive. So in the old days, you just take a picture, they send it to the manager who look at it and, and approve it. But if you have a backlog, you're never going to get back to it. Mm. So now they take a picture with with their smartphone and the, the computer vision actually looks at the alignment of, the, of your setup and tells you green light, go ahead, weld it, and saves millions of, of pounds. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's a kind of random industry, but it's actually quite an interesting use case. The other one I think is customer service, um, uh, which Facebook M is probably the most visible example right now, but the idea that you talk to a bot and the bot actually understands what you're asking for and can help you either find a product or actually get you into a restaurant. Uh, and I think that's really interesting, right? Customer service is a massive cost both because you could, it churns customers, but also it's a way to upsell and maintain them happy, keep them happy. So how can these kind of artificial intelligence engines talk to you and get you to the right solution at a much lower cost than a human? I think people have trouble unpacking the idea of what really the impact of the AI robot revolution is going to have on them. In that, 
we sort of have a mental image of a sort of a Terminator slash Android who's going to come and take our jobs yeah. or exterminate us. But, but, but you know, we don't often see that uh, some of these impacts are ones where it's not, you don't need a generalized intelligence platform in order to disrupt an industry. It could just be better computer vision. Or better healthcare, right? These right. Um, companies in California, Sentient being one of them, um, is actually using AI machine learning for healthcare by actually looking at um, patterns across millions of x-rays. Yeah. Or there's um, one here in, in, started in London by a former Googler, just went to YC um, and raised money from Kosla, that is effectively using excess time at MRI machines for you to be able to do human tracks. So effectively think of it as 23andMe for DNA, but yeah. for MRI. So he'll take a scan of you with an MRI and do it repeatedly every six months or so and look at how your muscle tissue is changing and how different organs are actually maybe being impacted. Huh. Uh, it's called Clarissimo. And I think that's quite a, quite interesting. Like how, I think there's gonna be a convergence right now around what we call healthcare and what we call big data and now how this algorithms and computer vision and other types of technology help accelerate healthcare and discovery of be it new drugs or be it new treatments. So, so do you see any consistent patterns around how AI is going to disrupt industries? I mean, uh, you know, b before this, it, it was issues with the internet of, you could see how scale, cost efficiencies uh, were you know, impacting industries, but this feels a bit different. Yeah, I think I mean, it's still early days, right? It, yeah. like the, the, the kind of the, the winter of AI, as they call it, didn't end that long ago. Um, but. Yes, I think that there's the ways in which data can benefit most businesses. I think AI is, at the end of the day, a smarter way of looking at data. Mm. Um, and this goes to everything from um, sensors in, uh, in factories or, let's say, remote wind farms, where the cost of you putting a man on a truck to go drive out four hours to go check all the, all the turbines is quite high, where, where sensors and actually some sort of algorithm or AI could actually give you heads up that something might be happening. Or even or, or predictively that it's likely to happen. Exactly. So I'm, I'm biased, but because we have an investment in a, in a company called Nubo that effectively does that. They, they're not an IoT company or a sensor company. They provide real-time and predictive analytics for IoT companies. Right. So that might be sensors in a farm that tell you to irrigate that corner, not that corner, because there's a higher um, the pH concentration. It might be uh, they have a, a partnership with iControl, the largest home automation company. To start being right now, iControl or your Jawbone just tells you that you walked. 10,000 steps so that your door is open, that's passive data. For me, I think the next step becomes this contextually aware um, helper that actually takes action or gets you to take action. Right. Um, so an example is, is you know, Google Now is probably the, the one that people most would probably have touched so far where Google Now knows where home is and where your office is. It has plug-in from the traffic information so it knows that unless you leave 20 minutes early today, you're going to be late to your first meeting. Mm. And it actually drives you to take that action by flashing up and saying, Metropolitan Line is down, you're going to be late for your first meeting. It's the difference almost between an, an automated system from a cognitive one. And, and, and the fact that it actually gets intelligence about you, right? It's actually super personalized because it understands where where I live, where I work, and I never told it where I lived and where I worked. It just knows that it's in that location most evenings and this location most days, mm. and it has my calendar, so it knows I have that meeting at ten. And it knows that I usually take the metropolitan line just by following the pings across the the, um, the, the phone cell towers. Uh, you know, I was speaking to someone recently, and, and he said it's not that the robots are going to take our jobs; it's just they're going to stop us being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know there was that big dis discussion obviously in the New York Times about the Amazon workplace and whether being in a data-driven workplace is actually somewhere you'd want to be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, actually, I got asked this question by a reporter recently. They're like, you know, well, all this technology you're funding is effectively going to displace people's jobs. Shouldn't you be doing something about helping them to get a new job? Right. 
like, well, in a way, my job is to help with that technology disruption. Um, yes, some of it will displace some jobs. I mean, I always joke with my lawyer friends that hopefully at some point paralegals uh, will effectively be replaced by, by robots. Yeah. Um, I, I think they are robots, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, but no, is it my responsibility? No. Is, is there going to be a cultural component to it um, in which, yes, the current jobs that we have today are actually going to morph. But yes, that was a case 30 years ago for different types of jobs. And now yeah. actually it was a case back with the Luddite revolts back in the, in the 1900s. I think the more interesting question is not so much will people lose their jobs, but what should people do? Like if you were going to upgrade yourself or your thinking or your organization mm -hmm. so that the people there, you can automate the transactional tasks, what is useful work for humans? Yeah, I think what are we good at, right? That robots yeah. are not, and I think it's this 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 um, this recognition of patterns that our brain can actually process much more quickly because it, it understands nuance, which computers just effectively follow algorithms and can't. So, no. But, but pattern recognition is a classic computer skill these days. How is it different from human patterns? So, music, I think, was an example somebody quoted the other day, um, where there was some robot um, that that was trying to create music, and apparently that they were showing, they were playing the music to humans, and humans were immediately recognizing which one was human created and which one was robot created. Right. So for some reason, the aesthetic that the human brain can create, robots can't. Um, we are, by definition, creative creatures, right? Will the robot at some point be able to learn and think and actually create on their own? Maybe, but that's, I think, still a, a bit further away. <laughs> right, so I, I, I guess the ability to synthesize complex information and, and see the nuances, as you say, into what that means is yeah. a very human-related task. I mean, I just read this, this book this summer. I was supposed to read non-business books. I ended up getting a science fiction book um, ended up being very applicable to my day job. Uh, it's, um, it's called Nexus. It's a trilogy. I don't know if you've oh, read yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the thesis is, uh, the story is about this drug that goes into the brain and nanotechnology that then plugs the brain into the internet and therefore connects it to other brains. And it's actually fascinating um, just thinking about if scientists, right, were working not as a brain of one, but as a brain of many that are interconnected, which is the way science works today. My research leads to your research, leads to somebody else's research. Yeah. But kind of doing it in real time. And I had a big debate, kind of bioethical debate about who could, who could get the drug, who couldn't get the drug, which governments allowed it and which governments didn't. And then I started doing some research. Actually, some of this research is happening right now. Duke University, they actually wired the, the brains of three monkeys to control a computer avatar. One monkey controlled the left to right, one monkey controlled the backwards and forwards, and one monkey controlled the up and down. And they could only make the avatar move if all three of them were actually like thinking together. Right. And so it went from like science fiction to like, oh my God, this is actually happening right now. And they did it with rats too, like uh, like uh, parallel processing yeah, of rats. one in Argentina and one, so the one in Durham and, uh, had actually already gone through the maze and so knew yeah. how to do it. The one in Argentina had not, but they were connected. And the one in Argentina nailed the maze, kind of effectively residual memory being passed from the one in North Carolina. There's a certain irony, and I guess in the rise of machine intelligence will probably drive us as humans to think about how we augment our own. And that was, a, yeah, and that's kind of the big debate, and that's a bit of the stuff about the book, right? What's, what happens with humans, um, this kind of post-human, transhuman, um, I think it actually, it will create some, some ethical issues for us. You know, Right now, there's a massive divide between North and South, even just in access to technology. Mm. What when one type of people can afford certain technology that makes them better and others cannot? What if, I mean, at which point do you determine one to be a, a, a different race from the other? There'll definitely be different, I mean, even right now, access to the internet, you know, the, the fact that we have access to the internet makes us more productive. The fact that the farmer in, in Ghana does not makes them less productive. There's already a disparity. Don't you think it's odd, though? I mean, we're talking about some really big ideas here, but when you actually look at the kinds of deals that generally get funded, they're not. It's not this sort of stuff. It, it's uh, it's things to amuse people or solve like you know quite banal problems in people's lives. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing is the difference between between like 
kind of VC fundable businesses and kind of some of it, some of it which is like still core core scientific research, um, where there's a role for universities and labs and government funded research. And then the question is how does that get commercialized? Stanford's been probably the best university in the world at taking stuff from lab and, and launching into the market, versus like you know funding the next crazy game that's going to make millions of, of dollars on day one. Um, at the end of the day, my business is to effectively go find ways to make money from this business and return it back to my investors. But there's very much a desire to figure out, you know, is this transformative or is this just one more, more gimmick? Mm. Um, I think it's interesting thing, like what Peter Thiel's doing with his own funds and what Chamath's doing at Social Capital, they're actually taking some fairly bold bets around healthcare. I mean, um, uh, Mithril actually funded a nuclear uh, fission company out of uh, <laughs> Seattle. That one's binary, right? Either it's just going to be another flop or it's going to be like the technology that transforms the world. <laughs> this is another cold fusion project. <laughs> yeah. They actually did YC. Uh. <laughs> it was like randomly, I didn't even know that. Uh, and, 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 uh, and Mithril funded them. That's pretty deep stuff and I would never actually understand half of what the, those guys would be doing. Yeah. Um, I think some of the stuff is happening around biotech and, and uh, kind of the discovery, acceleration of discovery of drugs or genetic um, recombination and the way in which we are going to be able to live edit uh, DNA in our own body and how that impacts both our longevity um, and, and our, our general health, which has other macroeconomic issues. I mean, this is why I love my job, right? I get to actually like think about these kind of an uh, intellectual basis and then figure out, is it investable? And some of the stuff is not, some of the stuff is not for me, and some of the stuff is today. Health is a big one, and uh, I mean, there are a lot of very traditional organizations in health, everything from providers to insurance companies that, that even themselves are resisting digital transformation, let yeah. alone disrupting their own market. Yeah, I think so. So, so interestingly, um, so a company that, that effectively is using smart sensors, uh, like smart watches, to track your heartbeat, and because of medical research, they can tell that certain changes in patterns of your heartbeat are a signal you might actually get Alzheimer's. Right. Um, the challenge is that the people that are willing to fund that app is actually the insurance company. And so that, it leads to a moral question. Do I want my insurance company knowing that I have a, a, tra a, a signal for Alzheimer's? Will that actually increase my premium? Will that be a risk? Am I no longer insured? But if you trace it back to where the funding is going to happen, some of this health, it's actually not necessarily the guys that do, want to do good. No. Um, so although, although you could argue that um, if they know you're not going to get Alzheimer's, you pay a much lower premium. Yeah, I'm more concerned about the guy that I'd say the risk who needs the coverage. But yeah. yes, I think that's uh, predictive care, right? For diabetic patients, they knew that if you actually take your insulin every day, you will be X hundred thousand yeah. dollars cheaper later on. So they gave you incentives, and this goes back even to the days of SMS, where they would send you SMS pushes reminding you to take your insulin every day or for you to self-report. Well, there's that outfit, that new uh, insurance company in, in New York, Oscar. Oscar yep. Yeah, and they give people Fitbits <laughs> yep. because they know if they exercise, it's going to they're less likely to get sick. And, and therefore, that reduces the premium. Same thing with car um, companies. We're here, uh, I don't know if in the US, but here in the UK, you can put a sensor into your car and effectively track your driving patterns. And based on that, they give you a better premium because mm. they can actually see how much you speed or how you drive. We're at this really interesting transition point where we're starting to collect and look at the data, but it's not so widespread and embedded into you know, business models that it's making much difference to our daily lives. Yeah. It's funny, I mean, I, my first job was actually literally building data warehouses um, when they're so-called decision support systems in the 90s. And the largest data warehouse, corporate data warehouse in the world was First Union Bank. It was one terabyte of data, and I think it cost them something like $15 million to go build. Yeah. One terabyte, you can literally almost walk around with a dongle that has that much storage today, right? It's, the cost is negligible. And yet, I see so many businesses that still like, 
throw away data assets. I mean, I won't name them and shame them, but one of the largest retailers, uh, sorry, one of the largest publishers in the UK was capturing this massive amount of data because it, in, it installed Facebook login, which I would argue is the deepest CRM database that's ever existed. And they were throwing it away because they, quote unquote, did not want to pay for the server costs. <laughs> and I was like, my God, you can't target the right audience with an ad, but you have this treasure trove of data in which you can actually do some really interesting profiling and you're trying to save thousands of dollars on AWS. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I still think that actually one of the biggest challenges is this, this data as an asset um, is not ingrained at, say, at the board level, at senior management level. It's, it's bubbling up, and I think we, kind of the digital side of the economy, is helping to to educate how important it is. But most traditional businesses, but they're the ones actually sitting on all the data. Yes, so the, the, the years of transactional data that actually could actually have reams of information. Right, the famous example in data warehouses was um, beers and diapers. Correlation: the fact that when men went shopping at a retail shop and they bought uh, diapers, they were likely to buy beers, and that was actually a surprise. So this kind of this whole idea of finding correlations <laughs> so you could actually do cross promotions. But you can only capture that because they had the historic transactional data and they could look at years of transaction and figure out that, yes, people bought beers with, with diapers. Uh, so I actually spent a lot of time when, uh, when I was at Facebook as well working with large corporates and, and trying to help them give them some ideas about how to use the data that they had, combine it with a social kind of CRM database to either upsell better, retain better. All these banks and telco companies have econometrics models. What are the econometric models could be influenced or, or enhanced by the social identity that I carried with me? In real time. Yeah. Uh, it's not just awareness or a board level. A, a lot of those executives haven't got the experience to make decisions in a world driven by data as well. So they're thinking in five years, they're not thinking about running an A-B test. Yeah. But you're, I mean, now with kind of the rise of CMO as the largest IT spender, right? Um, they're actually buying the tools to actually drive that, that I think that I mean, Dreamforce just happened in, in, in California, and I think that's Salesforce's big push is data is in the hands of the CMO and, and the sales organization. How can we make that data come to life to help them be better at selling or better at um, managing the, their clients? Christian, it's been very exciting talking to you. Th thanks again for your time. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.